and welcome to the Ad Fontes podcast. My name is Ansi Camel. I am the senior editor of the journal Ad Fontes, and I'm joined as always by my two co-hosts, Colin Chan Redimer, the poetry editor of Ad Fontes, and Reese Laverty, managing editor at the Davenant Press. Gentlemen, it's good to be here with you. Always good to be here. Good to be back, fellas. I was stranded on a small island last week, um, so it's nice to be here. That's not, that's great to that's have not you. a joke either. No, it's not. No, he was literally, literally stranded. He was <laughs> yeah. stranded. We're about to get yeah. on the plane, and they were told there was a hole in the runway. Can't fly. Then the plane was broken. Definitely can't fly. Men to fly back two days later. Plane still broken. So gone on a boat through thick mist to a bigger island to get on the plane there. <laughs> Western infrastructure for the win. So, Colin, um, what are we talking about today? Well, we have a, a guest actually on the show. I don't think he's said anything on the recording yet. So, uh, this is my one of my best friends. We go way back, Ryan Hamill. He's the, he's the Oregonian stranger. Right yeah, now. that's right. <laughs> with with the largest mustache of anyone on the podcast uh, yeah. by a pretty significant margin at the and moment. Are those, at least, Ryan, are those are those scars on your nose? Is that is that what I'm seeing there? Scars on your nose from when Colin bit you? No, uh, that is how our relationship began. Uh, I was a story for another day. A story for another day. All right. continue. I was just going to say thanks. Thanks so much. Um, I don't know if I'm cutting into the introduction, but thanks so much no. for having me. Uh, it's it is. I have to admit, with mixed feelings, that I joined the Ad Fontes podcast. I listen <laughs> every week um, with great pleasure. But now that I'm on it, I'm going to miss an episode because I don't like listening to the sound of my own voice. So. I was going to say, you're going to have to hear your own voice. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not going to listen. So this is self-sacrifice that I'm wow. hearing. That's pretty We're not actually intense. said who Ryan is. He just sounds like a, he's a super fan who's like one, you know, <laughs> no, no. slot on the R- show. Ryan is the, what's your what's your title? He, you're one of the founders of the Ancient Language Institute? Yes, yeah. I gave myself the title executive director. So <clears> you're the executive, executive director of the Ancient <laughs> Language Institute. And they... Uh, you know, our language program, <clears throat> a few years ago, we started the Davenant Latin Institute, and then uh, it started falling apart because somebody poached our, our only teacher and most of our students, and so the Latin Institute was really crumbling. And you guys actually, I mean, the thing a lot of people don't know is, Ryan, you know, we brought you in, you guys have really revitalized and saved our program. And so the, you're like the language department of Davenant Hall, students who come to us get a kind of a tuition break when they go study with you guys. And sort of when they finish their degree with us, they, they know and have to pass certain uh, language exams with you all after taking the spoken Latin. So we wanted to bring you on today because um, this is the, you know, the data. So wait, Colin, whoa, whoa, whoa. Back, back up, Colin. Did I, did I hear you right? Did you say that someone stole the language program? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was this really vile, you know, moment of corporate sabotage. So who was it? I don't know this. It was Ryan. <laughs> <gasps> you are the man Colin, why didn't you tell me this before we had him on why is i just figured it was common knowledge i uh you wanted to do he's, this he's my best friend right you know public <laughs> it's, it's all true okay well ryan welcome to the show um, <laughs> glad to be in uh both friendly and enemy territory as it no, seems <laughs> no 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 but really i mean apparently Apparently, you know, for our listeners out there, you know, you like the behind the scenes, whatever. There was some great reconciliation. I don't know the details. We're all on good terms now. Um, I don't know. I've actually never met Ryan, so I was never on bad terms with him. But, you know, I don't know. Colin and 
Colin and Ryan affected a, a great sort of like. I think the other way to tell the story, if we had to, and so uh, you know, I've having having told the most awkward possible version of it, I'll, I'll tell the <laughs> more generous, the most generous possible version is is I think our our the person who is running our language program, who's your co-founder, Ryan, and we're going to have him on the show at some point in the future, uh, John Roberts. You and he got together, and you were actually taking classes. Isn't that kind of how you found us? Why don't you tell us about kind of how you how you got involved? Sure. So. I was on the verge of making a horrible decision to go get a PhD. <clears throat> uh, I was working a marketing job. And, I love it. I love it. Uh, I was like, if I'm going to do this, I really need to know Latin because I was interested in kind of medieval European romance, like Arthurian literature and whatnot. And so I was just like, I, I know I'd, I'd need to know Latin. So I... Uh, was kind of vaguely familiar with Davenant. I think I had met uh, one of the founders out here, actually, in Oregon, mm-hmm. passing through. Um, and uh, ended up signing up for a class with the Davenant Latin Institute. And Jonathan Roberts was my Latin teacher. And um, I was prepared just kind of by the reputation of the language for something really tedious and difficult. And was almost immediately amazed at how fast I was picking up the language um, just because of uh, the active use and uh, the kind of spoken approach to the language that Jonathan was using to teach it. He had great materials, great book. Um, and so I just I just kept taking classes even though I decided not to go to grad school. Um, and then Jonathan combines this kind of rare figure in that he combines both uh, a kind of academic intellectual side with a high energy entrepreneurial side. And so he's running all these ideas past me for how to grow the thing. And then I think the two of you basically, when you meeting of minds happen and there was a realization that like the market for this is just a lot larger than we're ever going to meet at Davenant because at Davenant, we're really teaching people. The the point of learning the Latin is that we're going to teach you theology, right? We want you to be able to engage in the, scholastic philosophical project right Uh, and there's just so much demand to go read uh the literature of classical rome um and and then everything everything after that because i mean this latin literature continues for millennia afterwards and so yeah he was very focused on kind of the reformed confessions uh at davenant and so it just made sense to to grow the thing on its own and now, uh, because we have this huge, I mean, not huge, but bigger, bigger operation going, we can kind of accommodate definite students who want to learn Latin at basically any level, beginner through advanced, uh, as well as ancient Greek and biblical Hebrew. Um, so it's just that scale being the, the scale we can have independent um, actually works to Davenant's advantage. So the positive way to spin this then is to say that uh, the Ancient Language Institute is sort of a spinoff of out of Davenant. It's it sort of grew out of the intellectual ferment of what we were up to at, at, in our. It's like, it's like Better Call Saul. It's kind of gone off and been its own thing, and now has curved back in to the original product. That's how. That's how I've been explaining. <laughs> That's good reason. Yeah, except we're not doing drugs. <laughs> well, I don't you know, didn't man. say you're they're not Oregon. selling them. You're in Oregon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's great. Um, so, um, so, uh, okay. I, I was debating about when to introduce this question, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna just play some, some hardball here with you, Ryan. Sure. 
So you run something called the Ancient Language Institute, and you teach dead languages. Yes. <clears throat> For, like, people who are like, you know, me uh, or, or Colin or Reese, you know, who are interested in, you know, kind of doing advanced research in um, historical texts and stuff, obviously that makes sense. The utility of that is clear. Right. Um, why should, like, normal people care about learning Latin? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, th- it's an interesting question. So. That's why I asked. Yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> I'm complimenting you. Um, there's a kind of <laughs> maximalist, there's a kind of maximalist uh, thing that I don't know that everyone would say this, but some people I've heard, which is that kind of Latin has, everyone should learn Latin, especially because. Uh, it's the language of Western heritage, and it will improve your mind and all this stuff. Um, I don't necessarily agree. So we've we talk a bit about over at ALI about Dorothy Sayers and the classical education movement that has made Latin into the big thing that mm-hmm. every school child needs to learn. Um, and we don't have to get into Sayers right now, but I have some definitely have some bones to pick with her. Uh, I would say that. The reason to learn Latin or another ancient language is because you want to read the literature written in that language. Mm -hmm. And so if Caesar and Cicero and Thomas Aquinas and whatever don't interest you at all, like, I I don't know, I I wouldn't learn Latin because it's going to take a lot of your time and a lot of hard work. Uh... And you're going to spend money doing it. And so if you have no desire, no, you shouldn't. Um, but if you want to come closer to those texts and do what C.S. Lewis uh, calls looking along the beam of light in his meditations in a tool shed, you know, rather than looking at the kind of specks in the beam of light, but looking, looking along the light with these great thinkers and writers and statesmen of the past, uh, you need to think in their language with them to come as close as possible to them. Um, because on some level, like languages are incommensurable with each other. Uh, this is just the problem of translation. I mean, it's the name of your podcast that you need to go back to the sources. Uh, right. I think a good example of this, you know, might be for for our listeners who, you know, aren't quite as, as, um, I don't know, up on like how translations and stuff work. But just like think about, you know, if you think about all of your Bible translations, like why is there this, you know, extraordinary proliferation of Bible translations? Well, it's because everyone has different translation philosophies. And even if they have similar ones, they disagree with each other's execution. And so, you know, there's always room for improvement. There's always something lost in translation. There's always something that doesn't get communicated properly. Um, And so just being able to have that kind of immediate access to the text, um, you know, is, is, is very valuable if that's one of your interests. Well, I thank you for that answer, Ryan. That's actually the version of the argument for people learning Latin that I think is, is works. I don't, well, I, I, I don't really go I, in I for all if, the other ones, but I wonder like, if Ryan Connor said the, um, the, the, the quiet part loud or the loud part quiet, whatever. And that if answer your question was, why should normal people care? Ryan, was your answer kind of normal people probably shouldn't. If you're the kind of person who wants to read Cicero, <laughs> unless they want to read Cicero, then right. you're not 
you're not while, really while normal twirling these days. their mustache. <laughs> yeah, because like, like what you said, what you said reminded me of my, my wife. Sorry, I'll answer for a second. My wife did classics, uh, and when when we finished university, she was a fantastic Latin speaker. She's still way better than I am, but you know, several years later, not where she would like to be. But when she said she wanted classics, her parents were like, like, fine, great. You realise this 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 would be pretty useless. Like, you know, this won't this won't do anything for you. And she was like, yeah, no, I just really want to do it. And they're like, fine, cool, go do it. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it yeah. I mean, it depends on your definition of normal. I think this is some of the greatest stuff ever written. Um, and just to so speak you, more you'd broadly, be abnormal if you weren't interested. Yeah. On some level, I mean, especially if we expand it out beyond the scope of just Latin. Uh, I mean, talk about Hebrew and Greek. We're talking about the Bible. Uh, this mm-hmm. is this is the this is the book for everyone. Wait, um, are you telling me that the Bible is useful, Ryan? <laughs> if you're a Bible, priest, Colin. If you're that, a priest, only that the if Bible's you're a good. Uh, and actually, yeah, <laughs> it's the good book. And you know, I don't think every Christian needs to become a fluent user of Koine and Biblical Hebrew. But there's something that Drew Johnson, who's a great scholar and professor over at the King's College, said once that has stuck with me. He said, if you grow up in a border state. So, like, I grew up in California. Um, you kind of get by osmosis some Spanish, even if you never studied it, which is true. I never studied Spanish in school. I studied French. Um, and yet I can kind of blunder along in Spanish and make myself somewhat understood in a basic conversation uh, with zero formal study just because I've absorbed some of it by osmosis being in California. And he, and he said that would be amazing for the church if there was a kind of general osmosis of Hebrew and Greek, just because we're so close to the Bible all the time. Um, and that would be something to shoot for uh, looking at the church more broadly. Is just everyone's kind of a, a gringo, at least, relative to these languages and kind of blunder along and look at a sentence and be like, oh, yeah, I think I know what this saying. Let me look in the dictionary. Oh, okay, I... I've got right. a sense of what's going on. And, and actually, I think that is is a very apt comment and brings us to the question, of uh, which is always near and dear to the heart of the Ad Fontes listeners, about, about the Reformation. Because I think one of the things that you really get that happens in the Reformation is people realize so many of the churches don't have anyone who speaks any Hebrew or Greek, or, or in some cases even Latin, right? You just have, like, priests that are doing vernacular. They, they, they can, like, read the Latin out loud, but they really are only fluent in the vernacular. And so, you know, in the early reformers, there was a major press. We have to get these languages back into people so that every church has at least one person. I mean, this is kind of the dream of the Protestant seminary in its founding is that everyone who comes out of this is going to be able to read. You're going to have one person in every church at least who's this, you know, uh, non-gringo, to use your terms. Yeah. And... And like that, that's the form in which the osmosis could happen, right? Because everybody's right. going to be listening to this guy who could, if he chose, sort of discourse on this. My sense, and you know, you can tell me because you guys have a lot of students uh, who come from these seminaries. My sense is that for the last 50 years, at least, the seminaries in the English speaking world have not produced that. Do you have any, like, is that accurate? And do you have any theories about why, if, or, or you know, why not? Yeah. Could, yeah, no, it's it's true. The uh, opening question of that is a softball, but I, I'm more so. You know, obviously they're not producing these people anymore. But why is it, and and what could be done about it? Yeah, it's 
This is something that's a big problem with ancient language instruction um, generally, in the seminaries and elsewhere. And people just, I don't know, they, they have this idea that if I can lead some students through a grammar textbook, I can teach them the language even if I don't know the language. That's just not true. You can't pass on what you don't have. Um, and so that's part of it is people are trying to learn the languages from people who don't know the languages. Uh, Oof. Part, part of the reason that's <laughs> happening is because people have a mistaken notion of what learning a language is. Um, mm. They think that these ancient or dead languages are in a category unto themselves you can't use them for communication and therefore you don't need to teach them such that people can communicate in them. And instead you can just teach rules about them, grammar rules and memorize vocabulary, and then you'll know the language. But anybody who speaks a language has a knowledge of the language that differs from explicit knowledge about the language. So I studied Russian in college mm. um, and my roommate, he's uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainian, and he's like, so he grew up speaking Russian, but he's like, I want to know about, I want to know, like, how my language works, because I don't know any of the rules. I just grew up with this kind of uh, immigrant patois, where the their, their Russian just kind of drifted from actual Russian because they're just hanging out in the Pacific Northwest, just kind of sort of learning English, sort yeah, of yeah. making up their own Russian. Very American and, story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And so yep. we're in this we're in this class together and he's a fluent speaker and he's completely baffled by uh, the case declensions. He's like the ablative following acute. What? What, what does that even mean? I, I just know that you're supposed to say this. And whereas I'm memorizing all the grammar rules and having a terrible time trying to speak with him, he has a completely different type of knowledge about the language. Uh, it's a knowledge that he can't necessarily always articulate, but it, it, he can use it to understand and produce speech. I have a knowledge about the language and cannot leverage that in order to produce speech. And so that's obvious with modern languages. People think these ancient languages, just because they don't have modern speakers, uh, don't work that way, but they do. So, Ryan, I kind of want to push you on that point because sure. this is actually something I've always been skeptical about. Uh, sure. no, no, no offense. I, I've actually – I took Latin the way that you're describing it and I actually took Greek. Uh, Wait, he's Greek. describing two ways. Which way did you take it? The the way that he likes. The the kind of like, you know, spoken, heavy emphasis on spoken and, Dr- and yeah, we'll call it, We'll call it direct method and then we can say right. grammar translation. And then there's on. like a supplementary, you know, kind of grammar education that goes along with the direct <clears> method, right? Yep. Um. So I, I just kind of wanted to press you on this because, cause, um, you know, I learned Latin that way. I learned Greek that way. Um, but it does seem to me that there is some difference um, when you're talking about actual dead languages, namely that the the versions of the language that you're actually engaging with, right, mm-hmm. um, are not normal, right? Ciceronian Latin, like Cicero is writing a very particular kind of Latin, Yep. But he's not speaking, He, you know, presumably he's not speaking um, in the sort of Latin that he's producing as a literary artifact, right? So there's a, there's a kind of, um, so when you want to... But could you know, we well, not hold, speak hold on, hold in on. the form of the language in which we read on Z? But but here's here's my point, Forsooth? though, right? Because there, there's so many English speakers. By my there's troth. So, 
There's so many English speakers. We speak like that over here all the time. Who are incapable. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you guys going to let me talk or not? No. Uh, <laughs> I, we're, I'm waiting for you to steal the Ad Fontes podcast from Davenant so we can bring it back. So you can it's, bring it back. It's going to be even better <laughs> when I'm in charge of it. Ansi, <laughs> okay. come with me. I'll make so, them shut up. So good. Now, so with, now with more Fontes. <laughs> Double the Fontes. <laughs> Okay. Multi-fontes. Okay. okay, triple so the going ads. back to my point, though, there are all sorts of English speakers who are incapable of reading, like, high literary English prose or okay. academic English prose, right? So there, there are versions of the language. We all sort of operate with various versions of the language. And it just seems to me that, like, when you're trying to learn how to read Cicero, the best way, would it be helpful if you had a kind of, like, you know, street, you know, vernacular understanding of the language? Sure, maybe. But, but you know, there's a way Cicero isn't, um, Cicero's Latin isn't normal everyday Latin. So how does knowing normal everyday Latin help you read Cicero if knowing normal everyday, link, everyday English doesn't necessarily help you read, you know, Shakespeare or, or even, even like, you know, I don't know, um, Auden it, or, or Eliot or something. But does anybody know everyday Latin? Because surely by kind of definition, whatever we have of, Latin texts is not everyday Latin because nobody wrote down what, you know, Caecilius um, was saying in the garden, you know, um, it's all right. But if you like, listen to like, there's this Latin podcast that I listen to. I forget the name of it. Ryan probably knows which one I'm talking about. Um, but it's like all in spoken Latin. Quomodo dicitur, I think is what it's uh, called. Yep. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, they're, they're sort of like speaking Latin, but they're, they're, linguistic sort of like mannerisms are kind of like american so the so they'll they'll like substitute an english word if they want to go like okay 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 so they'll like say that in latin like it's it's not immediately obvious to me that that like helps me read you know cicero maybe it does i still listen to the podcast so clearly i think it has some benefit but i just kind of wanted to ask you about that ryan have you given much thought Mm -hmm. to to that issue yeah um i mean so there's a few kind of assumptions built into the question uh I think I think it helps to just zoom out a little bit and think about second language acquisition, both kind of theory and research. Uh, the thing without which you have nothing is comprehensible input. <clears throat> I'm not sure if Stephen Krashen invented this phrase, but he's really the popularizer of it. He's a linguist at USC, and he's just done a lot of research on people picking up uh, second languages, um, both kind of normal people just picking up a second language and polyglots picking up, you know, over a dozen languages. And he said, the one thing they all have in common is lots is taking in lots of comprehensible input, meaning communication that they can understand. Um, you just have to take in a lot, a lot of that. Um, the problem with grammar translation is that as an approach is that you kind of memorize some vocab in a list abstracted from any meaningful communication. It's just words on a page, not in sentences, not communicating anything to you with any meaning. Um, And then you memorize charts and then you're kind of doing code breaking because you're given, you know, the first line of Caesar's Gallic Wars. And I mean, this is like 
not something that a toddler should try and figure out. And you are a toddler in the language. Um, and then you're just kind of code breaking Caesar with the mm. rules and the dictionary. Um, you're not really taking in meaningful communication that you can understand. Insofar as a grammar translation method act- ends up more or less accidentally exposing you to <clears throat> lots of comprehensible input, it'll work. Um, what you need is lots of comprehensible input. And so the direct method, the living language, all this stuff, the point isn't that, you know, conversation is some end, especially in these languages. Yeah, you know, in French or Spanish, conversation probably right, is Right, you your, want to know how end. to talk. Yeah. With Latin, and so some people come to us and they're like, I like what you guys are saying, but I don't really want to learn to speak Latin. That does not matter to me. I want to read Ovid. Uh, and we're like, absolutely. That's why we're here. We're not here ultimately to teach people to speak Latin. We're here to teach people to read Latin. But the best way to learn to read it is to learn the language and get lots of comprehensible input. And that means uh, listening to it, speaking to people uh, to practice the output, um, and then just reading a ton. And so, yeah, the, the important thing is that this direct approach to the language is getting you lots of kind of comprehensible, compelling input that you're interested in and is uh, kind of doing this magic thing in your brain, giving you that implicit knowledge that my Ukrainian friend has with Russian. He doesn't understand the language, uh, the rules of it, but he can speak it fluently. And I, I just, you know, I'm going to push back from the much more colloquial perspective on what you're saying, Anzi, because I, it, it just seems patentedly obvious. Like, of course, most people who speak modern English have a little bit of a hard time when they're first introduced to Shakespearean English, um, let alone let alone something like real Middle English or something, you know, like Chaucer. Uh, but it, it's, it seems just clear that it is easier to go from being a contemporary speaker of English to reading Hooker in his original or Shakespeare in his original or Traherne or one, any of these books that we're doing modernizations of, um, you know, it's far easier to do that than it is to go from like being somebody in Greece who's like studying a grammar chart and then going straight to Shakespeare. Uh, and in fact, when you, when I talk to like international students who I, you know, this is me sort of reflecting on having been in the classroom for a lot of, a long time and, and having to introduce students to things like Shakespeare a lot. So when I look at my international students, you know, universally, they will tell me, of course, they studied English, but they also watched TV. You know, they listened to radio Mm -hmm. and, you know, and and those were the kinds of things that helped them get to the point where they could sit there. And I mean, I'm thinking one one student in particular who is, you know, a fantastic speaker of English, you know, who's reading Kissinger and stuff, because that's like what he does. He's a really weird guy. Big, big (laughs) fan of this kid. Um but like he got there by, you know, watching friends. Yeah, no, Colin. So I don't actually, I don't actually disagree with that. My disagreement is <clears throat> that with something like Latin, we actually only have the equivalent of Richard Hooker and Shakespeare. Well, that's not actually the, true. So well, that, not, that's one of the assumptions that uh, that is not true because. But do you have? You don't have any. We don't have any texts that are like that are like actual colloquial latin from first century rome we just yeah, don't we do. and like yeah i mean colloquial I mean, it, yeah if you think about a lot of the comedies um the dialogue of these plays is written in kind of colloquial street latin um and further we have all these conversation manuals 
Um, and so like one of our teachers, he's really, he's really into this stuff. Um, and so I'll not name all the ones that he would want me to name, but like, so, I mean, Erasmus is, is very famous. Um, his, my teacher, he's really into Chatenius. Uh, and so those guys are early modern, but they're working with older texts of course, uh, to try and recreate Latin. But, but that's my point, I guess, Chitinius. Ryan, sorry, just, to call him, well, no, well, call right? just to like finish my point though. I mean, so what I was trying to say is that, that, that it is still a recreation though. Right. I mean, isn't that, which is to say is that it's equivalent not... to like prose in Shakespeare, which is less heightened than the verse in Shakespeare because it's, you know, right. for dastardly things or for the lower tier characters, but is kind of plainly not how people would actually speak on the street. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I, do we have a tape recording of like slaves and prostitutes in the streets of Rome, like <laughs> chatting? No. Um, is everything in a Ciceronian register? No. Like there's, okay. there is yeah, a pretty wide range. Um, it's yeah, not yeah. all like Augustan <clears throat> poetry. Okay. Uh, but so you're telling me that you cannot actually teach your students how to pick up a prostitute in the first century <laughs> in Rome. Uh, we've never tried. I mean, there might be something out there about that. She wasn't interested. I, I can't confirm that that's, you know. Actually, I was just reading there's a contemporary it. of Plutarch who's a historian who did, in fact, write uh, like a history, a biography about some famous prostitute in Rome. So I'm, I'm wondering, actually, I bet you guys could pull it off. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, then then it would be in Greek because he was he was doing Greek. But well, he um, was doing Greek, but it was Plutarch's writing in Greek, but it's in the Roman Empire, uh, right. and I th I believe it's a contemporary of his who's writing in Latin. Okay. Oh, contemporary Plutarch. Suetonius. Thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah. oh What was it? Colin? Yeah. Is Suetonius? Is he writing in Latin? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was the the guy. Yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for thanks for thanks for fielding my my question very generously, Ryan. I appreciate it. I've oh been, yeah, no, like I, dying to ask because I don't know Jonathan super well. We've talked like a little bit, but I've been dying to ask one of you guys this, and so this was like the first opportunity I really had. So I, yeah, I could push back a little bit on uh, something you said because you, you're you're basically making the argument that you should only learn Latin because it's going to if you if you want to read Aquinas or something, and. Um, you know, obviously, the the most common argument you hear for learning Latin is, well, you're going to improve your SAT scores, and right. there might be something. I mean, I think there's CST something. CST scores, the, yeah, or the <laughs> ACT, or, or what is it? Or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, CLT. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, that's right. The SATs are no longer accepted at, at most elite universities, so I guess we're not <laughs> trying to maximize our SAT scores that's anymore. Right. That's right. For better or worse. Yeah. Uh, but but there is something to uh, you know having studied some etymology, um, you know aren't you aren't you sort of helping your ability to grasp all sorts of nuances in the English language itself by learning Latin and Greek? Uh, I, I that to me seems very yeah. compelling as an argument. Yeah, yeah. I just I think there's lots of side benefits to learning Latin uh, or <clears throat> Greek or Hebrew. Um, but you can get those benefits other ways too. And so those things could be arguments for Latin, but they're, they're not going to convince me at least that that's why you should learn it because you could do it some other way as well. Like you could study English Root etymology or something. Yeah. You could study just English etymology because it's not like Latin's the best way to do that because 
if you study Latin, you're going to miss all the Germanic stuff going right. on in English. Um, so if you really, if you really want to, you know, improve your brain, there's a billion ways to do that. Latin's one way. Um, one way to improve your brain and make money would be to learn how to code. Uh, you know, or or even learn how to code in Latin. Right, you get <laughs> off of that class. Even better, learn how to code in you know a language that matters commercially, like Mandarin or German or something. Uh, sure, sure. So. Uh, all right, I have one other uh, way of trying to push back on the idea that it's just to read Thomas Aquinas. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that not that I don't love Thomas Aquinas. You don't really Thomas. need to know Latin to read Thomas Aquinas. Uh, well. Not <laughs> said contra. Uh, said contra. No, I'm I was. Sure, I was channeling I'm sure our... Davenant fellow Ryan Hurd would disagree with you. <laughs> no, no, he actually, he actually, um, he made a comment. Anyway, sorry, I was. I don't want to drag him into this. You know, I haven't asked him about this, but but he made some comment that like it's incidental. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> Sounds scholastic. When you it get to the bottom, uh, when you get to the very bottom very of Thomism, it's just ones and zeros, Ryan. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> So go learn to code, people. So the other argument I'm going to make is not my argument at all. Um, it is, in fact, the argument of the uh, esteemed chair Tolkien. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, another dog on the show. Yeah. We like dogs on the Ad Fontes podcast. If you have a dog that you would like to feature on the Ad Fontes podcast, <laughs> write an article for the website. <laughs> AdFontesJournal.com. Is that the journal or is it dot org? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, dot com. W- dot com. Dot, dot what? Dot com. Dot com. And, uh, you know, if we publish it, we could bring you on the podcast and interview you about your article, and you can uh, have your dog bark in the background. The reason, right. the reason for this, we're wondering, <laughs> the reason Colin doesn't know what the URL is is not because he never visits our website, right, Colin? It's because you have it bookmarked, and you never type it in. Because uh, I certainly know what bookmarks are and how to right. use them. <laughs> All right. I am not a boomer. All right. All right. Uh, so, uh, the, the, the argument is J.R. Tolkien's argument. And he, he, he writes in a few places that the reason to learn a language is the pleasure of it. Because each new language is like a new wine or, you know, a new cheese or, or a new location and a new culture. There's a, there's this way in which humans, you know, just, we enjoy, you know, learning the virtues and vices of men and, uh, languages sort of crack that stuff open at a really fundamental level. So, I mean, what do you make of that? That it's, um, it, it almost is incidental. Like the, the literature of it is sort of a secondary thing to the pleasure of learning, you know, how to say, how to, how to communicate and think and conceptualize things in this new way that, that has an indigenous culture that it came out of, right? It's sort of organic. Yeah. Uh, terroir no, that, or whatever of the language. That's great. Yeah, no, that's great. And, um, I think, you know, if you look at his valedictory address, I think, I think you're representing his argument well. But then, if you look at the valedictory address, it actually coincides in large part with what I'm saying, because one of the great battles, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, at Oxford that Tolkien and Lewis fought um, was to unite kind of Lang and Lit. Mm-hmm. So there's this divide, right, in the, uh, I think it's the English department, I don't know what they call it, um, between the people who want to just read English literature, and that's what the English degree should be, 
and the people who want to do the Lang side and Mm -hmm. learn all about etymologies and grammar and kind of how it all works. And for Tolkien, he said, I'm not, I was, I'm not on either side um, because these two things go together. They're essential to each other. You can't understand a language without its literature, but you can't really understand a language's literature without understanding the language. And so when he says that about, uh, you know, learning a new language is like cracking open a bottle of wine, I think inherent in the phrase learning a language is kind of drinking deeply of that language's literature, because that's the highest expression of that language. Um, so are you saying that there's like a, that, that the words and the constructions are themselves like the product of the poets of the people? There's a lot of P's in there. <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't know. What does that mean? Well, because if, <laughs> if, what, if what you're saying is that learning the language is always learning the literature of the people. Oh, I'm just, no, I'm not saying always. I'm saying when Tolkien says that, given mm. the other things he said, I think when he says, you know, learning Gothic is like opening a new bottle of wine. Like that means reading the Bible translations in Gothic. It's like seeing how the language works, how the words are put together, what it sounds like, how it communicates meaning, all that stuff. Like literature is a part of that. But isn't it, isn't my, what I, what I had said previously implicit in that statement that there's, there's a way in which for the language to be the way that it is, it, it has to have been the product of these communities who use the language and the people that are using those language are sort of poetizing the, the meaning of the language and the kind of uniqueness of it in a way which makes it distinct from other things. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think so. Um, so then can we judge poetry or some poets better than other poets? Yes. So can we judge languages? Uh, yes. I mean, so my favorite example of this is uh, Borges, Borges. I don't speak Spanish. I only mm-hmm. picked it up by osmosis in a border state. Um, <laughs> on uh, the, He appeared, uh, this great short story writer, on Firing Line with William F. Buckley way back in the day. Um, and he says <clears throat> something to the effect of, I wish I was born a native English speaker. Um, because English is much better for poetry than Spanish is. And he, he says that, he says it's for a few reasons. One is that the kind of bastard character of English, where it has both a Germanic and a Latinate uh, lineage, mm-hmm. creates kind of two words for every concept that have mm-hmm. the same denotation with different valences yeah mm-hmm. um like kingly and regal um mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. you there's this kind of poetic richness whether you want something kind of northern and strong or something kind of southern and uh beautiful and light. mediterranean yeah, yeah exactly uh another one is he talks about how um stress falls in english stress tends to fall at the beginning of the word Mm. Um, whereas in Spanish, it's usually the penultimate syllable. And so like with adverbs, um, lentamente, just word for slowly, mm-hmm. uh, rapidamente, the stress is on just this adverbial ending that doesn't have any meaning besides this is an adverb. So then you're stressing like 
the adverb quality rather than the lentamente, if the stress were different, you'd be stressing mm -hmm. the slow mm -hmm. lentum. Mm. Um, whereas English, you, you get the stress on the meaningful part of the word. I mean, this is his opinion. I don't, I don't know yeah. Spanish, so I'm not really going to judge, like but how, um, he thinks it's it, what, quite possible to do that. Well, it's, you know, one of the impossibilities of translating uh, Dante into English is because, yeah. um, which everyone's like, oh, it's, you know, it's tragic, everything always is inadequate and we'll, we'll miss out on some deep level of, of the poetry. But it's partly just because it, in Italian, loads of words sound the same at the end. Every, so everything it's rhymes. It's easy to create a rhyme. There's actually a Dante scholar staying at my house for the, the last <laughs> month or so. And so we've been talking about this. You know, he's Why teaching has this gone up on the show, Colin? Well, he's, he hasn't written anything for the journal. So we're the editors and publishers. And he won't leave college house until he has. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know but, that when he showed up. You know, that. his point is, as he's sort of talking to me about Italian, is the beautiful, you know. So again, I, I think I'll retract a little bit of the statement. I'm not sure we can judge languages in the sense that we can rank them. It's not like there's this er language that we need, you know, or if there is, it's like known only to God, right? It's like the 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 tetragrammaton or something crazy, you know. Um, but but when we're talking about, you know, the languages produced by organic human communities, I think we can judge them as superior and deficient relative to certain qualities. Yeah. And so if you're talking about rhyming, for example, Italian is far superior at rhyming. Yeah. And the the beauty of speaking in Italian is that everything rhymes with everything else. You know, almost every other word rhymes. <laughs> which, which lends, I mean, well, there are a couple of points following from that, but I think that's part of why different languages develop different poetic forms. Right, because mm -hmm. there, are, you know, <clears throat> the pressures. I mean, as we were talking about in our poetry episode, right? If you great episode, love that one. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. um, it was pretty much Colin and Reese. I don't know much about poetry, mm -hmm. but, but 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 what um, you know, you really know. But <laughs> it's also it not true. It makes nothing <laughs> happen. That's all we need to know. Yeah, but um, but if you think about like poetry is like the creative application of pressure on a language, um, in order to sort of like see what you can make it do or something like that, then then the pressures for different languages are going to be different. Um, mm. The pressures that are worth applying are going to right. be different. Because if you have a language with like gendered, you know, endings, right? Like, a, a, or, or cases that make words end the same, rhyming is going to be much less valuable um, mm -hmm. as a sort mm -hmm. of pressure, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing I was going to say, though, too, Colin, is to your point that um, the... the you know, the romance languages, you know, there is that sort of rhythmic quality because so many of the words, you know, have so many of the same sounds. And so mm -hmm. there's this kind of musicality to the speech. Yeah. Um, you know, so English well, might whereas be Whereas in, in Old English, in, sorry. In, in a, sorry? I was going to say, in Old English, um, what ties poetry together is alliteration. You know, you have the same alliterative sound thrice in a line and, and mm -hmm. that's right. what ties everything together. Yeah. Yeah, and the, I mean, the great poetic form of English is blank verse. I mean, Milton, mm. Shakespeare. Yep. Uh, and this is these are unrhymed iambic pentameter lines. Um, and yeah, you you don't have like blank verse epics in Italian, like Dante's Terza Rima. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. Yeah. So it, just uh, as before we, we close then, the, the question that this is all driving to in my mind is, you know, if you wanted to rank them, where does Latin rank? And uh, if you don't want to rank them, at the very least, you have confessed that you're required to tell us about, you know, uh, is Latin, what is it What is it good for? What are the pleasures of Latin? If the pleasures of Italian are that, you know, you, you've, you know, he, I was learning this phrase the other day that's like, every meal isn't over until your mouth tastes of cow. 
you know, that's like an Italian <laughs> phrase. But in Italian, it's like, <laughs> I've lost all of our Italian listeners. <laughs> you just insulted an entire country. Oh, man. They love uh, Americans, though, so they're they're going to forgive me. If, if you learn, yeah, one Italian sentence uh, and speak it to them, they'll all forgive you because they'll yeah. think you're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, great. So, um, well, I asked a question. So I'm, oh, yeah. I'm wondering, and yeah. if you guys know more Latin than I do, I don't know any Latin uh, what, you know, what, what are is, what are the pleasures of learning Latin in particular? I mean, I'll kind of go back, uh, on my word a little bit and talk a little bit about the grammar, um, mm. just <laughs> how powerfully Latin can compact meaning, uh, just because it's, you compose Latin so much differently than English. And so as a native English speaker coming to a Latin text uh, and just reading something in Latin. It's, I don't know, it, it seems like just masterfully wrought. Uh, mm. Like I was reading Seneca, Mumquamus um, Quiubiqueest. I was like, uh, okay, how would you render this in English? He who is everywhere is nowhere. It's like, that's fine translation. Um, but it sounds a little stilted, whereas it's almost poetry. I mean, this is just a letter that Seneca's writing, but mm-hmm. it's almost poetic. Numquamus quiubiqueus. It's only it's only four words. And mm. for English, you have to kind of insert all these like pronouns and stuff to try and mm. create it. Um, and so it's it's just kind of yeah, start a little startling, sparkling gem of of language. Um, that's, that's, that's one of the things. Yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rank them. Uh, but, uh, that, that's at least for me, one of the great pleasures of the language itself. Yeah. I think I've had a, I've had a similar experience actually, um, reading, um, St. Luke's gospel, um, in Greek, there's this sentence when he's introducing Mary, um, for the first time in the gospel, uh, Ryan, you should, and I don't, Colin, do you know any Greek? I know some Greek. You know, that's right. You know Greek, of course, right? With the Aristotle. But I mean, you guys should check this out. I'll, I'll send you the some. chapter verse. But um, but basically the way that, that Greek is structured allows you to construct sentences with, for our listeners, like nouns um, and verbs of various sorts in essentially an infinite number of configurations, right? There are certain set set verbal forms that you have to observe, but because it's a case system. You can kind of put stuff very flexibly in the sentence. And so he, he introduces Mary and Mary is the last word in the sentence. So the entire mm-hmm. sentence is like describing her mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and her history and her background. And it's like this build up, build up, build up, build up. And the name of the Virgin was Mary. And it's just this Ooh. like extraordinary sentence. And I was like, wow. Cause Luke is like really w- one of the few good stylists in 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 the new testament i mean most of the new testament authors aren't great stylists but like luke is a stylist and so it was mm-hmm. just one of those moments where i was like yeah and that's just something away. you can't do in you can't do it in english uh language like english that requires word order to produce meaning whereas with latin and greek and a lot of other languages you produce word order with these case declensions which you guys have heard us talk about um and so you can play around with word order when you're creating meaning 
with the endings of words. You can pr play around with the word order, word order to create these poetic effects, like what Hansi's talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really great. Well, any um, final thoughts, questions before we turn to the what we're reading section? We didn't even get to what I thought was going to be a major topic, which is education in the digital age, which is obviously something you guys have thought a lot about. So I'll just want to leave that there for our listeners and say we'll we'll have Ryan back another time and, and try thinking through uh, what it means to be talking to you all via podcast and, and Zoom links and all these other things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That would be a great, a great future. There was just way more to unpack than, oh, than I yeah. think any of us was expecting. So this is great. Um, all right, so let's turn to he's the one. He's one of my reading. favorite people for a reason. You know, he's, nah. he's, he's got something going on. Not just the, the mustache. It's not just, <laughs> not the, just the mustache. mustache. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let him fool you, ladies. <laughs> I'm not eligible, ladies. I'm not eligible. I'm taken. <laughs> well, um, thanks for coming on for this conversation, Ryan. Um, let's shift me. to the what we're reading. Um, and I'll just start with you again. What are you reading uh, these days, Ryan? Uh, well, I have a confession to make. Um this is something I'm ashamed about enough to have lied about in my past. Um, <laughs> and so in due penance for my sins, I'm going to admit it here on the air to live in perpetuity on the Internet. So like I said, I studied Russian in college. I have been interested in and kind of fascinated by Russia since almost as long as I can remember. My parents for a time were missionaries in the Soviet Union they helped found the Campus Crusade chapter at Moscow State University. Um, and so I've just kind of always been fascinated by Russia. And I have not, till now, read The Brothers Karamazov. Um, and that's what I'm reading right now. And it is... Good for you. It is, yeah, mind-bogglingly good. That's a magnificent novel. You're not alone, Ryan. I have yet to read it either. Oh my it, gosh! It is good. I, I also read. We it talked in my about 30s. this once, though. We said yeah. that yeah, you need. To, we I think the, the point was you should read Dostoevsky when you're young and disillusioned and have. Loads like, of I have a bone to way. pick with you guys because of that episode. Um, pick I tried bone. reading Dostoevsky as a teenager, precisely in that kind of <laughs> disillusioned yeah, same. state. My one attempt was to read Crime and Punishment. I just got really bored. Same, same. Yeah. I couldn't finish it. Uh, it was totally inert and lifeless to me. And now yeah. as a 30-year-old reading Dostoevsky, it is bowling me over. I mean, Ryan, thank I was... you. I feel vindicated after that <laughs> okay. episode. I, I was I, so... Oh, man. I was just down visiting family for Wrong. Easter. Wrong. And uh, <laughs> arguing with a relative who's, who's a Christian, but kind of not practicing and kind of believes it all, but is mad at God, I think. Um, and arguing about just kind of classic problem of evil stuff. And so I'm like trotting out all the apologetic stuff um, about like God doesn't create evil. Evil is non-being. Da, 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 da. Um, and he's just talking about, you know, suffering and like, how can God create suffering? Like, even create a world where suffering is possible as a consequence of sin. Um, and my like, Arguments are falling on, you know, deaf ears, basically. And then that night, I'm lying in bed, reading yeah. the Grand Inquisitor passage. And I'm like, Dostoevsky is taking these arguments more seriously and bringing them as far as they can possibly go and just making you suffer through them uh, in a way that, like, my soul isn't big enough to do unless he's kind of virgil like 
guiding me along into the pit of hell. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautifully put. Reese, how about you? Well, what do I say after that? You know, oh, my reading this <laughs> well, week that's why was I put you after me that. Virgilian style into the oh, pits yeah. of hell. So, yeah, okay. But at the very um, least, people will enjoy listening to your voice. So oh, That's right. Yes. It, it'll bring them down, the and, then, and then they'll get to me and Colin, and yeah, yeah, just yeah. be kind of like, you know. Uh, well, while I was on holiday, I made the mistake I've made on every single holiday I've been on since I became a parent, which was I bought a huge stack of books and read <laughs> read a small amount of one. Um, but uh, I've carried on reading. It's been great fun. I've been reading a biography of... Um, W.H. Auden, who we've mentioned a couple of times while we've been talking mm. about poetry. I think it's just called W.H. Auden, A Biography by Humphrey Carpenter. came out in um, the 80s, but I think it's still you know, the definitive Auden biography. Great biographer. Um, yeah, really, really, it's really good. Wonderful. Super readable, uh, detailed. Um, you know, I'm just getting to, I've just got to him having his first collection poems published in 1930. So long way to go. He's still very irreligious at this point and has been, kind of has this immensely dissolute sexually um period in his life especially when he's in berlin which before he goes he asks is it very wicked in berlin um and yes yes it is <laughs> when he gets there um but just all these hilarious things about kind of what a larger than life character he was and what he, what he was like as a guest apparently when he would stay at people's houses they would always in the morning find that he got cold in the night and had just taken all sorts of things to warm himself up. So they'd get up and be like, where's the rug? And they'd go upstairs and he'd like dragged up the thickest rug from downstairs, like taken the curtains off the window in order to cover himself in his bed. What a maniac. He yeah, does look very fun. skinny. He looks like he could use, you know, a little beef. Yeah, and then he just becomes this huge, like, kind of sack of a man later on in life. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it was his the face. face. Uh, maybe he, I, I think he that. looks fatter than he is, but he's so cragged and saggy. And right, um, right. you know, my wife she loves she's an excellent um, sketcher, and she will only sketch people who are really ugly or really old. I showed her a picture of Auden, and she was like, oh, "I'll draw him. I'll draw him all day." <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, oh. yeah, that's me, Colin. What about you? I have been returning to a book that I have previously read for for some research purposes called What is Political Philosophy by Leo Strauss and it's not one of his um major works it's uh it's rather just a collection of his essays from the 40s and 50s that couldn't really find a home anywhere else and so he shoved them all together in and some of which I I think a few of them were originally in other languages and he had to translate them into English and and put them together um and, uh, you know, the, the titular one is the most famous one for sure. What is political philosophy is, is sort of his, uh, introductory essay that sort of explains what this discipline is and why it should exist. And, and the analogy I think I would have to give for people to understand what this essay meant in the 1950s, you know, world of academia is like political science was the big thing. And he's trying to say, no, no, no. Like you, you can't do political science without having done political philosophy. We have to keep this tradition alive. It would be as if someone on in a like major university or at least a small school outside Chicago, um, you know, sort of said all of a sudden, "Hey, you know, Milton Friedman, all of you economists, you can't do economics without doing political philosophy, without doing you know political economy, which is really just a part of political philosophy. You need philosophy to be able to do economics." I mean, that's just so outside the bounds of what everybody reading The Economist and thinking about economics is thinking. Um, and yet right. maybe is maybe is actually where we are. I don't know. So hmm. um, it's a it's a really fascinating series of essays and would love to, you know, 
see more people engaging with it. Yeah, that's great. I don't, uh, for myself, I've been... Uh, You've been I've packing. Been, I've been packing. That's right. All of my books are in boxes. So <laughs> <laughs> I actually did see your boxes the other day, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, so anyway, I haven't been doing too much reading. I've been spending a little bit more time in the scriptures, actually, which has been good. Um, that's good. But yeah, you know, it's like, it's a you good need thing to, to do. Actually. Well, well yeah, I'm, I do. I'm glad I to do. hear it. I very particularly I, I need you. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. You go to Princeton, um, you know. <laughs> get it in while you I can. Needed, <laughs> I needed Jesus long before I was in Princeton, <laughs> going to Princeton. But uh, anyway, so yeah, so that's kind of what, because we move, we move next month. So I'm kind of just gearing up for that. But um, excellent. Well, Ryan, thanks again for, for being here. It was great to have you. Really an honor. Yeah, love love you guys. Love the podcast, and just totally awesome to be talking and we're, with you guys. Of course, we're spotlighting the Ancient Language Institute, and if students uh, sign up for courses at Davenant Hall, you can ask us, and we can get you a discount code so that you, even if you're not a full time four credit student at 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 um, Davenant Hall, you're just somebody who's taking classes. You're in the network. Uh, let us know that you want to go over there and study the ancient languages with with these guys, and uh, we'll we'll hook you up. They'll give you the they'll give you the ad fontes bump. Yeah, and we'll try to drop those links in the in the show notes so that you can find the links to us and and uh, so on. So, um, and actually, I've I've recommended the Ancient Language Institute to to uh, some friends of mine who are interested in learning Latin. So Thanks, we'll Auntie. see. I don't know if they'll sign up. Yeah, oh yeah, of course, of course. But we'll see if they sign up. But. Um, if uh, Well, now to our listeners, if you liked what you heard today, uh, we would ask that you give us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify, you know, if you're one of those people who listens to Spotify. Um, it, it helps. Still. Uh, it helps. Joe still. Rogan fans. <laughs> it's like Netflix just Scum. lost 200,000 subscribers. Spotify is next. No, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so if you could give us a five-star review, if you like what you heard today, that'd be fantastic. And if not, if you hated it, if you really don't like Latin... Or don't like us, or maybe some combination of the two. Colin, what should they do? Well, clearly you should not go to ancientlanguageinstitute.com and learn Latin, because if you did, you know, then you would be able to give us a one-star review in Latin. Uh, but don't do that. Um, so if you didn't like the show, you know, buzz off. <laughs> this week, I mean, next week I'll give you something to do. But this week I have nothing to do with you if you don't like Latin. Ite, ite. Whatever that means. I don't know. Romanes eunt domus. Vini vidi vici. I don't know. Oh, man. My Latin has gotten really rusty. Okay. So with that. Degustibus uh, non disputandum est. <laughs> I'm just listing the phrases that I know, Auntie. I'm trying to fit in. How am I doing? Well, you can, you can, you can do it better than I can, Colin. I've got nothing. Absolutely nothing. So... Uh, but with that, we are the editors. In vino Veritas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ketteris Paribus. Ketteris Paribus. Carpe diem. <laughs> Carpe noctem. Oh, I don't know, Colin, or maybe Ryan, do you know, do you know my sign off? We are the editors. This is the Ad Fontes podcast. We are the editors. We'll see you next week. Can you do that in Ooh. Latin? Uh, I'm going to put no. you on the spot a little bit. No. 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 <laughs> okay. They don't okay, say okay. that on the street, on C. In your heightened, you know, evangelical elite podcasting cadence. That's right. Only Cicero. And I can't read Cicero. So, um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. An adequate judge of the man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man.
man. All right. We are the editors. This is the Ad Fontes Podcast, and we will see you next week. Thank you.